is the Victorian Country Hour with Warwick Long on ABC Radio Victoria. Welcome to the program. The Federal Agriculture Minister Murray Watt will join you shortly on the show to talk about US apple imports being allowed into Australia, but on a time when we've had hail damage to crops, uh, many of you still dealing with the aftermath of floods. Also, the Emergency Services Minister will have him on to talk about all of that and more too. If you've got a question, something you'd like to raise, you can certainly send us a text 0467842722. There's been an on-again, off-again thing with releasing wheat out of the Black Sea region to do with the conflict in Europe. We'll have a look at that and what it means for markets, but also what it means for food getting out to poorer parts of the world today on the program as well. And we'll head to Rochester and Elmore and that region today where ABC Central Victoria has been broadcasting uh, on the cleanup of the floods. And we'll talk about the cleanup on farmland today. Also, how do you prepare, if at all? for next time. All of that and more coming up on the program today. Would love your thoughts. You can send us a text 0467 842 722. Right now though, let's get some rural news with Emma Field. Good afternoon, Emma. Good afternoon, Warwick. Let's start rural news in New South Wales, where the Namoi and Murrumbidgee rivers are in major flood. Meanwhile, in the northwest, the Gunnedah region is in its fourth major flood in two months. The region's mayor, Jamie Chaffee, is predicting the flood crisis will devastate the local economy for a long time to come. We know there have been major effects to the winter crops. Summer crops that people are struggling to be able to get onto land to actually plant, that'll have reverberating effects right through our economy, not just in the weeks of the floods, but it'll go on for more than 12 months. Staying in New South Wales, where preparations are underway today to rescue a 1,000 sheep flooded near Forbes by helicopter. Warren Bailey's mob of ewes and lambs have been stranded for months due to the floods, but he's hoping two helicopters can get them all to safety. They're caught between the Lachlan River and a flood breakout. They've been in this paddock for about four months and we've caused the breakout, which normally only runs maybe a couple of weeks a year, has been running full-time for the last three to four months. The Lachlan's basically been in flood the last six months, at least, I'd say. So we haven't been able to get them out. We've had a lot of seepage come up underground, which has unfortunately filled the paddock up of water. But we are very concerned now that it's got to the stage um, it might actually breach the banks. How will the helicopters carry the sheep? They've got some portable cages they apparently um, carry underneath the helicopter possibly um, 20 to 30 sheep. Um, these the ewes have got lambs at foot, so the 30 would possibly be counting some lambs in, in each load with the crate. Tasmania's biggest salmon farmer is expected to go into Canadian hands after a shareholder vote for the takeover at a meeting in Melbourne today. Tassel's board had unanimously recommended shareholders take up the $1.1 billion offer from private Canadian aquaculture giant Cook Aquaculture. The ASX is expected to make an announcement shortly. To Queensland now, where there's a shortage of guns and ammunition in the west of the state. Roo shooter Rob Ellis regularly has to travel 700 kilometres from his base at Winton to buy supplies after freight companies TT and Northline stopped carrying guns and ammunition. He says bad weather has also made it hard to manage. I know heaps of gun stores will get a big shipment in and it's gone within a couple of days. Well, it's not just Roo. Roof shooters, property owners and everyone are trying to get bullets, yeah. 
Yeah, ammunition's hard to get at the moment because I live so far out west and we've only got a little gun shop here and he can't keep up with it. There'd probably be 20 or 30 roof shooters in Winton. We've only been able to get out and do a couple of weeks at a time that it's been raining again. So we've only shot for probably half the year because of the rain. And then it takes half an inch now and you're stuck for another week. Over to South Australia now where researchers will look at adapting existing technologies to reduce methane emissions in sheep. Department of Primary Industries and Regions will look at different methane reducing additives fed to sheep via trough water. The Australian Government will contribute $700,000 and AWI has chipped in $300,000 for the project. Angus Island from AWI says they want to find the best solution. We're not putting all the eggs in one basket as in terms of which might be the most effective supplement to add add to the feed of sheep, but a number of them are sort of rising to the top. You might be aware of the, the seaweed asparagopsis. It's been shown to have the potential to reduce methane emissions from, from sheep by as much as 80% when those sheep are in, um, in a pen study where their diet can be controlled. And we're now wanting to progress that out into the paddock situation and try and answer the questions that need to be addressed to see whether it'll work in that environment. Will the sheep take enough of it to have a significant reduction of methane? Will it be safe for the sheep? Will it affect their reproduction? Will it affect the meat that might come from those sheep? Um, There are are many um, questions to be answered. And finally, in southern Queensland, where stone fruit growers near Cumbai have faced cloudy and very wet weather, right when stone fruit growers are hoping for sun. Teresa Francis says it's going to make this year's harvest difficult. You know, we probably had, it felt like two weeks where the sun just didn't come out to play. Well, And, you know, being stone fruit, we need that sunshine and that bit of heat to help things ripen. And, of course, if there's too much moisture, the, the fruit will just suck up that moisture um, and the fruit will then go soft. And that's Rural News. Thanks very much for that. Emma Field there with Rural News. The Victorian Country Hour with Warwick Long on ABC Radio Victoria. Yes, Warwick Long with you on the program today. Let's turn our attention to what we started the program speaking about yesterday, and that is the recommendation to allow US Apple imports into Australia. There's been concerns raised by industry over many things, the subsidies that the US uses to uh, export produce, meaning an unlevel playing field, the, the talk of using antibiotic sprays to deal with things like fire blight and pests and disease in the US, which are not... Uh, in Australia and the threat that is posed by those that pest and disease to Australia. To join you now to talk through some of those concerns is Murray Watt, who is the Federal Agriculture Minister and Minister for Emergency Management. Murray Watt, welcome back to the country. G'day, Warwick. Good to be with you again. Should we start? What's your response to the recommendation to allow US Apple imports to Australia? Yeah, well, look, I can understand some of the concerns that apple growers have been expressing about the future of their industry. That is completely reasonable that people are concerned about this. But what I can assure both uh, apple producers and all Australians of is that the strictest biosecurity standards possible will apply to any imports that we end up receiving of US apples, just as those very strict rules already apply to imports from other countries like 
New Zealand and China uh, and Japan. So we obviously take biosecurity extremely seriously in this country. And you probably saw even in the most recent federal budget, we've kicked in another $134 million to further tighten our biosecurity regime. Um, but the reality is, uh, if we do want to be able to trade with other countries and if we want to be able to sell our beef, our dairy, our sheep, our wheat, our wool to other countries, then that also does mean from time to time we need to allow other countries to import to us as well. There is so we're suggestion take, yeah. that citrus for, from Australia to the US was effectively traded off against US apples coming back the other way. Is that the case? Well, I wouldn't quite put it that way, uh, Warwick, but certainly we have an interest in exporting a range of other product, pro- products, including citrus, to the US. Uh, and the reality is that um, it's very unlikely that we can open up markets in other countries for other products if we're not also willing to consider taking their imports in some cases as well. And I think what we need to make sure of is that when we are thinking about allowing imports from other countries, whether it be the US or anywhere else, uh, that we make sure we do it on our terms and in particular have very strong biosecurity regimes. And that's certainly what we're intending to do here. Uh, As Apple and Pear Australia, the industry body that represents the apple growers in Australia, they say they understand the science behind and, and they accept the science behind the importation measures, but they don't trust the government work at the borders to keep out pest and disease, citing varroa mite, guava root nematode and other incursions in recent years as areas where border protection has failed. What assurances can you give them that it will be different this time? Uh, Well, I suppose the assurances I can give them are that, first of all, we do continue to have one of the world's strongest biosecurity systems. And sure, there are examples where from time to time it hasn't picked up everything. But if you think about the range of plant, animal and other diseases that are in other parts of the world, I think Australia's biosecurity system has uh, stood the test of time pretty well. Uh, But in addition, as I say, we've taken the opportunity in the most recent federal budget to strengthen our biosecurity measures even further. Um, with extra biosecurity officers, extra detector dogs, uh, the livestock traceability system that we're implementing as well. Um, The other thing to bear in mind for this particular uh, issue is that um, the requirements of any trade will be that inspections need to be conducted uh, of consignments of apples on the US side of the border as uh, before they even get transported to Australia and they will be inspected again on arrival. So, We'll certainly be doing everything we possibly can uh, to ensure that the sorts of diseases that are out there don't get brought back into Australia. Uh, And I have every confidence in our biosecurity officers that they'll do the right thing. Uh, There is also concerns from industry, and and as I mentioned in the introduction to you, to control things like fire blight, which is not in Australia. uh, Growers need to use things like antibiotic sprays, which are not allowed to be used by Australian apple growers. Um, Is that an unfair playing field if they're using products in, in America to grow apples that aren't allowed by growers here? Well, I think, again, if you look around the world and look at the entire trading system overall, um, different countries do things in different ways. Um, We have standards in Australia that apply for very good reasons and very often uh, they actually add a premium to the product. And I'd be certainly encouraging apple growers to spruik very loudly the quality uh, and the uh, green nature of much of their production as a competitive advantage over apples that come in from any part of the world. So, you know, I, I don't 
I certainly haven't given up hope on the Australian apple industry. You know, we, I think we all think that Australian apples are the best in the world. Um, they're super crunchy. They're super sweet. That'll go on. Uh, and I think that making sure that we keep producing the best product we possibly can uh, is good for our domestic sales. But also, I mean, we're obviously keen to work with the apple industry to increase our exports of Australian apples as well. Currently, we actually export less than 1% of all of the apples grown in Australia. There are other markets out there that are interested in taking our apples, and I, and I want to work with the industry to take advantage of those opportunities. Yeah, and just on that note, Assistant Trade Minister Tim Ayres raised the ire of fruit growers yesterday in response to a similar question saying that growers should just export more. The growers say, well, US fruit is subsidised by up to 65% to, to export, as well as other fruit-producing nations. Is that what holds back Australian exports like apples is the fact that they're competing in an unfair market. Uh, look, I'm, I'm sure that that does affect some producers, uh, whether it be apples or other crops as well. But, you know, every country that we try to import our or export our products to has their own rules. In some cases, there are some subsidies. In some cases, uh, there are biosecurity regimes that other countries impose and, and they don't like necessarily things that we do. So it's a complex system that we have to navigate our way through. But I can sure, assure the industry that we'll be you know, really cooperating with them as much as we possibly can. Uh, I've had industry figures talk to me about the opportunities they see in other countries, whether it be Japan or other parts of Asia. Uh, and with a bit of help from government, we can potentially open up some of those markets even more. And that's what I'm going to be focusing on going forward. Federal Agriculture Minister Murray Watt is with you here on the country. Aaron Minister, just on a couple of other issues, if I may, uh, there is many stories. We had this on the uh, on the, the country hour yesterday. A letter from Coles to suppliers has raised questions about the actions of supermarkets lately. That letter asks farmers to pass on the savings to the supermarket if it does get savings in the in the cost of production, but also asks those same farmers to absorb any increased input costs. Is is that fair or right for a supermarket to do? Well, I think that all Australians expect our big retailers to treat our farming community respectfully and well. And I don't think we can have a situation of double standards where retailers expect to take all of the positives and none of the negatives. Um, we know that farmers are struggling at the moment with higher input costs, and that is leading to increased cost of production, which does have to be passed on uh, in some cases, at least to retailers and to consumers. And I think retailers have got an obligation there as well. So I, I, my position really is that we need to have a level playing field as much as we can and producers need some bargaining power in their negotiations with retailers and they can't be expected uh, to cop all of the bad stuff and none of the good stuff. Can government do something here? Will you speak to Coles? Uh, look, I, I probably need to get across the issue a little bit more, Warwick, uh, at the moment. Uh, it, it only got raised with me for the first time today. Um, but what I've sort of said to you is the general principle that we'll be adopting, and I'm certainly happy uh, to work with farm groups and, and others to keep our retailers to account. We, You know, obviously all Australians buy their groceries and don't want to have to pay any more than they possibly have to, but we need to make sure that producers get a fair go in this system as well. And then if floods and other emergencies that you've had to deal with as emergency management minister Minister aren't enough. A hailstorm hit a lot of Goulburn Valley fruit growers, which grows somewhere between 30 and 40% of Australia's apples and up to 90% of Australia's pears uh, earlier this week. Growers say they're going to need some form of assistance from some level of government. Would will you look at that as the federal government? 
Yeah, we'd, of course, uh, be happy to look at that and work in partnership with the Victorian government about that. Uh, I think people can see that we've already been acting very cooperatively with the Victorian government to help uh, relieve farmers who've suffered damage from the floods recently, and we take exactly the same approach uh, when, it, when it comes to other forms of disasters as well. And, Minister, I'm being as cheeky as I can and taking as much time as I can as well. Murray Watt is with you, the Minister <laughs> as you for <laughs> Agriculture. Uh, released today, the long-awaited National CARP plan, uh, which was released out today. It doesn't call for the release of the much-talked-about CARP, well, Koi herpes virus, to uh, effectively eliminate large numbers of CARP. says more research is, is needed there. But... Is there much you can tell us about the release of this document and, and what you, you expect it to do to our waterways? Yeah, look, we're still working our way through this as well. We're, we've only received um, this document uh, for the first time ourselves today and it's over 4,000 pages altogether, so it'll take a little bit of time to work its way through. But my observation uh, from a quick read of the paper was that it does suggest that there is research um, that shows that using uh, that virus would be an effective control measure for carp. But, of course, we've got to think about the wider impacts of introducing that kind of a virus more widely as well. It seemed to me that the recommendations were that you could consider using it in a more targeted manner rather than just going and plonking it into every river system right around the country. Um, but there's still some work to be done here. We've got to get the National Biosecurity Committee, which includes the most senior biosecurity people from the federal and state governments, to have a good look at this now as well. Um, but I think it is a really solid piece of work based on really good evidence. So I think it's a really helpful contribution to what's been a very challenging issue for a long time. Yeah, so it sounds like you support the idea of more research. You're not taking the koi herpes virus off the table. No, I mean, as I say, I think we've still got to take a bit of time to work out what way, way through this report. So I'm not really in a position to give you a categorical answer at this point in time. But um, what, what it seemed to me from this report was that it, it did seem to have some evidence that using this virus would be effective if all we were thinking about is focusing on reducing carp numbers. Um, but of course, we've always got to think about the wider impacts of introducing these sort of species as well. So it may be that there's a bit more research needed into that before we go uh, following it holus bolus. And as Minister for Emergency Management, obviously flooding continuing in areas of New South Wales. Again, uh, the cleanup continuing in Victoria. We're about to head to Rochester to hear about that cleanup for agriculture there. But, but are you expecting to either tour or be back through some of the flood affected areas of Victoria anytime soon? Yeah, I am planning to do that um, pretty soon, uh, Warwick. Uh, obviously, I was with the Prime Minister. Uh, about 10 days ago in Bendigo and I also personally went to Seymour and I've certainly been staying in touch with people in places like Shepparton even if it's had to be by online uh, conferences and stuff like that but I am hoping to get back soon. Of course one of the challenges is that we're seeing floods in so many different parts of the country so I've sort of been into pretty much every state, almost every state on the eastern seaboard over the last uh, week or two to look at the flood damage, western New South Wales a couple of times uh, there's obviously flooding in some parts of Queensland and Tasmania as well, but I'm certainly trying, doing my best to stay on top of what's happening in Victoria and can assure people we'll be produ providing whatever support is necessary. Are you worried about fatigue? The, the flooding emergencies and the, and the length of emergency management that has been constantly on alert in Australia has been there for some time. Mm. Yeah, no, I'm very concerned about the level of fatigue we see in these communities, Warwick, and I see it, you know, I see it in the government officials that I deal with, I see it in the SES personnel who I meet with, the councils, the residents, the farmers, you can really see these communities who've been hit time after time are very fatigued and 
while it's a New South Wales example rather than Victoria, when I was in Forbes recently with the Prime Minister, people there were telling us about, you know, the fact they'd experienced, I think it was about five floods already this calendar year. And right now it's looking at flooding again as we speak. So, you know, it just shows you that these things just aren't going away and it's having a big impact on people. So I guess that's why I'm just really keen to make sure that people know we are standing with communities. We we know what they're going through. Um, the state governments, I think, have been doing a good job of getting resources out early. Uh, and, of course, we're backing them in with more defence force, force personnel. Um, but, unfortunately, it's going to be another difficult summer now that we're facing a third La Nina. Um, and I think everyone needs to hang in there and, and really stick by each other through these tough times. A lot of issues to talk about, and we thank you for your time, Minister. Thanks for joining us. Good on you, Warwick. That is the Federal Agriculture Minister and Minister for Emergency Management as well, Murray Watt, speaking to you there about a number of issues, US Apple imports, but also issues to do with supermarkets, issues to do with a CARP plan, which has been released. We'll bring you more detail on that in the coming days as we digest what's in that as well. But that's the the initial thought is stopping short of... um, uh, suggesting the release of the Koi herpes virus to control carp numbers, saying more research is needed. And you heard the minister's views on that there. You can tell us what you think about what you heard there. You can give us a call, 1300 977 222 to call us, 1300 977 222, or you can text 0467 842 Right now on the country, though, let's go international because there's been major movements in grain markets throughout the week to do with the war in Ukraine. Russia said it was going to allow boats through from Ukraine to help get grain to poorer nations that were in need of feeding their communities, but uh, then reneged on that deal earlier in this week, sending grain markets into a spin. Well, things have changed again. Andrew Whitelaw from Episode 3, a market analyst, took me through exactly what's happened and how the Australian market has responded earlier today. We've got a deal between broker between Ukraine, Turkey and Russia to allow the exports of grain from Ukraine to largely to feed parts of the developing world. Uh, but on the weekend, uh, Russia came out, I think it was a Saturday or Sunday, they basically said, we're going to uh, blockade the ports, we're going to not allow this deal to continue ahead. And so that spooked the market quite a lot because obviously uh, that supply coming off the market is is going to be a big impact on price because if you Prices are determined by supply. If there's less supply, prices go up. Uh, but then it sort of turned around again in that uh, Turkey and the UN kind of called their bluff, I could say, to an extent. And they said, we're going to continue to allow the grain to be exported. And I don't think Putin wants to really go up against Turkey and then risk losing access to the uh, to the Bosporus. This issue is to do with, obviously, war in Europe and the conflict between nations. And there's obviously a very human cost involved. But... There's also the agricultural and the and the wheat market cost, which is what we're speaking to you about, Andrew Whitelaw, today. How did the market react when Russia initially said it wasn't going to allow these exports anymore? Look, we had uh, probably about 36 Aussie dollar increase in Chicago futures. Uh, but then that's all come back since then when, uh, when it looks like... Uh, Exports are going to continue as normal. But you are right. It's a, it's a market factor. It drives markets. But there's a human element to markets in that we've got places like Ethiopia and Somalia going into famine that are really require those grains. And so it, it does have you know, wider ramifications than just the price of grains. We all want high prices, but we also don't want uh, the poor and starving in uh, Eastern Africa. 
a big rise in prices and a big fall in international markets. Did we see the same rise and fall on local markets for, for grain here? Not really. No, basically, I think most of the grain trade was on a Melbourne Cup holiday. And so there was very little, very little price reaction. And look, that's to be expected as well. We don't, when the futures market rallies quickly, and we see futures markets rally really quickly, it does take a while for the physical market to to move up because people have to, traders have to look at it and say, well, is this going to be sustained or not? And, and in this case, it hasn't been sustained so far. But what I would say is normally when we look at markets, we're looking at supply and demand. We're looking at things like the weather and, and demand for products around the world. In this case, the market has been moved by you know the stroke of a pen by Putin and so that's making markets more and more difficult to predict and it's making them more volatile so you know we've this grain deal that was suspended over the weekend and is back on is due to expire in a week or so so we could see more fireworks next week and the week after so hold on to your hats and given we are in East Coast and West Coast harvest periods right now for Australia, do you expect high prices to continue through this harvest period for Australian growers? Look, I think we, historically we've still got really high prices. I think the big issue is going to be the quality. We're going to have terrible quality wheat. It's going to be feed wheat, a lot of it, especially in, in New South Wales and Victoria. So we expect and we're already, already seeing those discounts to the lower grade wheats uh, emerging and so that's something that we've seen many times before, 2016, 2010. And that's just what happens when we have a, a wet finish. But I think prices historically are still going to be high. Uh, we've had worse prices with big years, uh, but it's going to be a, a challenge just actually getting it harvested over the next couple of weeks. That's Andrew Whitelaw from Episode 3, Market Analyst, speaking to you about what's happened in Russia, but also incredibly wet harvest and what that means for prices here uh, plenty of downgraded wheat as you've just heard with his thoughts there we're going to go to uh, Rochester shortly on the program Elmore that region talk about the cleanup talk a bit to farmers about what they're doing right now and what the outlook for their crops is I will also hear an extraordinary story uh, particularly around some stranded sheep that's going on as well. But right now on the country, hour, let's find out what's making regional news headlines. To help us with that is Richard Crabtree. Good afternoon, Richard. Good afternoon, Warwick. The SES is warning the flood emergency is far from over, particularly for communities along the Murray River. Water levels have only receded slightly in Echuca, with a major flood level expected to remain through to next week. Flood water is expected to reach Swan Hill around Monday, while the SES says Mildura won't see potential major flooding until the first week of December. Releases from the Hume Dam have also increased from 50 gigalitres a day to 75 gigalitres a day. Residents at Doctors Point near Albury have become cut off by flooding and road closures, with one exit possible via a bush walking track. Homicide squad detectives are continuing to, continuing to investigate a shooting in Beechworth last week, which left one man dead and another seriously injured. The injured man, a 60-year-old from Beechworth, has been released from hospital and charged with possessing an unregistered handgun and cultivating cannabis, among other charges. He was bailed to appear at the Wodonga Magistrates Court in May next year. 
New research shows people's attitudes towards climate change have shifted. The annual Climate of the Nation report found that 75% of people say they are concerned about the effects of climate change. More than half of people surveyed also believe we are already experiencing the impacts of climate change a lot, up from 33% in 2016. The Australia Institute's Director of Climate and Energy says the results may reflect the series of recent natural disasters. And the city of Ballarat says 57 of its employees will be impacted if its proposal to withdraw from Commonwealth-funded in-home aged care goes ahead. Under the change, the council would implement its own service model from next June, with clients assured they would receive support through the transition. Council says some staff within the current service team would need to apply for new positions, while others would be offered redundancies. And that's what's making news work. For more, visit the ABC News website, abc.net.au forward slash news. Good place to go. Thank you very much for that. Richard Crabtree there with regional news headlines. On ABC Radio Victoria, you're with Warwick Long for the Victorian Country Hour. Let's check in on the weather now. I think we're a little bit calmer than we have been for the last few weeks, but Hannah Marsh can take us through all of those details for you on the forecast today. Senior forecaster at the Bureau of Meteorology. Hi, Hannah. Hi, Warwick. Is that a fair assessment? Are we calmer today and tomorrow? Still a little bit on the cool side uh, for many people's liking, but uh, as you mentioned, definitely calmer. Uh, In terms of rainfall, we had a weak front go through last night, which saw some uh, falls of up to around the 15 to 20 millimetre mark, but that has moved off to the east, and since 9am, we've generally seen falls of less than 3 millimetres, increasing to 2 to 8 millimetres in the northeast, but any shower activities really being confined to on and south of the ranges and uh, it's contracting to the east as well so we'll start seeing uh, bigger breaks between showers as we head into the uh, afternoon and particularly evening period. And uh, having a look at some of the temperatures so far, it's been to 17.3 degrees at Albury, at 16 at both Shepparton and East Vale today. At Bendigo's been to 15.3. The city in Melbourne at 14.9. At Orbost, 14.6. And Ballarat at 11.9 degrees. But as I mentioned, the good news is a high-pressure system is going to start dominating our weather and move gradually to the east which is going to see the winds uh, gradually shift around to the north um, and clear off the showers. So we're looking at uh, some patchy morning fog tomorrow morning. Uh, Still some isolated showers about the south, uh, but looking at dry across the north of the state. Temperatures generally cool to mild and partly cloudy with uh, light southerly winds, and they will tend variable during the day. Uh, But having a look at some of the temperatures tomorrow, getting up to a cloudy 21 degrees for Mildura, 18 at Horsham, 19 for Bendigo, getting up to 21 degrees at Albury-Wodonga, 17 and cloudy for Warrnambool and looking at 19 degrees for Sale. So the weekend, is that when we get warmer? It is. So we're looking at temperatures around the uh, low 20s on Saturday and by Sunday we're starting to push up towards 25 degrees. So uh, looking at uh, 25 degrees for Shepparton, Echuca, 24 for Albury-Wodonga and Wangaratta and uh, for Melbourne as well. But on Saturday we do have a trough 
uh, over New South Wales, which will extend into Victoria, just bringing a bit of moisture. So we are looking at the possibility of seeing um, some isolated showers increasing on Sunday and also the chance of thunderstorm as well for the eastern parts of the state. And then beyond that, what's it looking like early next week? Is there much rain around or do the dry times stay? Yeah, so we've just got that moisture in the east really maintaining on Monday and Tuesday as well. Uh, Not looking like significant totals at this stage, but we will keep an eye on that and it isn't until the next system later on Wednesday and into Thursday that uh, we see the return of some, um, some cooler temperatures and wet conditions. Any particular days or anything we need to keep an eye on for that? Uh, not at this stage. There's a little bit of uh, model differences, but like I said, it is looking towards Thursday, Friday, uh, just starting to develop in the west on Wednesday. And any warnings we need to know about right now, Hannah? Uh, so we've still got the warning to sheep graziers for central and west and south uh, Gippsland forecast areas. We've got the marine uh, coastal wind warning for central Gippsland and east Gippsland coasts. And then uh, the flood warnings as well, um, many of them still ongoing. So the best thing to do is to keep up to date on uh, our website, www.bomb.gov.au. We're about to go talk flood recovery uh, in a few moments' time, so keep listening to ABC Radio. But Hannah Marsh, thanks very much for the update. Thank you. Senior Forecaster at the Bureau of Meteorology talking to us there. Next, we'll go to the Elmore and Rochester region and catch up with Luke Radford. You're with Warwick Long for the Victorian Country Hour on ABC Radio Victoria. The big clean-up and the effect of floods in towns and regional communities uh, continues and in many ways one of the epicentres of this latest flooding emergency has been along the Campaspe River at areas like Rochester where ABC Central Victoria has spent the morning broadcasting from. Uh, our rural reporter Luke Radford has been there and is also on the road today around the Elmore region as well and can join you now. Luke Radford, welcome back. G'day, well, it's good to be here. What's it like being in Rochester as the clean-up continues? The the immediate threat is gone, but the work to clean up the town continues. Well, you know, it's cliche to say, and, and it, it gets overused a heck of a lot, but really, you know, this is where the real work begins in so many ways. And I didn't really appreciate this about flooding, I've got to admit, till now, um, because I've only ever faced bushfires and the like before in my original neck of the woods but you know the the immediate threat may have passed but in terms of the cleanup and you know in town is is one thing because lots of homes have been inundated but I guess for us if we're talking about cleanup on farms this is a process is process it's not a week or a couple of weeks or a month like this could be year-long potentially multi-year and the impacts you know will be felt even further abroad um, and in particular for me I was traveling around sort of the, the area between uh, Rochester and Elmore yesterday on the, the Bond Road, which is uh, over on essentially the uh, the eastern bank of the Campaspe River, um, which is where a lot of the water did come through. And we've heard from guys like the Acoxes beforehand, or we talked to during the actual flood events, but checking back in and seeing what the damage is like at the moment uh, and where the, the trouble areas are and, and what has actually happened to the, those properties, you know, um, livestock losses are one thing. Um, fortunately, it seems like that's been relatively light here and, and across other parts of the state. But crop losses, um, particularly parts of... I, I was travelling around some of um, 
with, with Toby Acox yesterday on his property and surveying some of the damage to the canola crop there and some of the wheat crops. Um, and it's really interesting because there are stretches of canola that have been knocked flat, but are actually looking like there still could potentially be a bit of life in them. Like it could almost be worth salvaging in a way. Um, but there are big strands of wheat that just have not survived this in the slightest. Um, down on the river flats in particular, some have been flattened. Others are just dead as a doorknob already. You know, it, it looks like, in, in many ways, it looks like wheat that's ready to harvest from a distance. And then you get up close and you realise that it's just, it's, gone and has been for you know a week and of course for toby acox i mean he's got six thousand hectares across four different properties and at this rate he's estimating probably only going to be able to get on maybe half of those uh we're optimistic we might get half of it we're pretty sure that there's at least half of it gone and uh we'd like to think that we'll get on to the rest of it but as to how weathered impacted it is well we're not going to know until we get it into a header but just driving around you can definitely pick the wet spots in a lot of the paddocks you can see that they've died off or they're going to be severely impacted but hopefully we'll still run over at least half of the program that's toby acox there speaking to luke radford and luke radford's with you as we look at the cleanup particularly in that area for agriculture on the country hour today and luke it's that cleanup that is long and arduous and, and continuing day to day for a lot of the farmers you've been speaking to yeah it's dragging out and you know the the challenges of this is essentially you know water has obviously damaged crops and the like but getting into things like hay sheds you know destroying the lower levels of hay or worse um in some places getting into silage pits so i was actually out with a a dairy farmer called dave christie who's out to the east of uh, rochester itself out on the flats out that way and you know he's had water get into uh, a number of his silage pads and, and the question is you know when we unveil that, what's that going to look like? Is it going to be completely useless? Will some of it be salvageable in that part? Here's Dave Christie talking about the clean-up on his farm. Oh, just with the barns for a start, we got them sorted. Yeah, well, like I said, we brought in, I don't know, what's there, 2,500 metres of wood chips to put back in the barn, so the cows are back in there now, so they're right. Yeah, lost a few cows and sold a heap of cows that were crook, mastitis and foot rot and whatever else. And, yeah, just getting the cows right, and then we'll work out rest of the farm so you also going to downsize the herd a little bit beyond what you've done so far yep 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 we're selling young stock at the moment and yeah we'll probably drop some care numbers just just till we can secure some fodder like i said we lost lost a fair bit of hay in our loose and stand so that was probably three thousand rolls we would have cut for the year that we won't get any so uh, yeah until we can source some fodder we can't keep keep them all that's Dave Christie, a dairy farmer, speaking to Luke Radford about the work that's got to be done to clean up for things like floods. And, of course, then, Luke, the idea is people start turning their minds to next time and how to prepare, if you can prepare for the next flood. And, you know, the challenge with that is what can you do? I mean, one of the things that was sort of said to me yesterday is, yeah, we, we sort of knew maybe not that a flood event of this size was coming, but we knew it was going to be wet. We knew something like this was coming at this point of the year. And when it did arrive, we could really, you know, we did what we could, but we could sort of only just watch as it as it washed through and destroyed things. So the question, of course, is what can be done? And it was a question I asked Toby Acox. Here's what he had to say. Uh, there'll be a few banks get put up, protect, um, protect houses in particular. They don't have to be massive. We know where the water's got to. We know where it's going to try and run and all that sort of thing, but we'll, we won't be letting a 150-year-old house get wet again, I know that much. When you're farming on the river, you've got to expect floods at some stage and you can't really do much to stop that. When we get to 
look at what's left in the country that's still underwater now, we'll maybe we'll make some changes in terms of the way irrigation runs or the way fences are put back up. But for the most part, it'll just be clean up and back to how things have been, I hope. I think that Rochester as a township has copped an absolute flogging, but it's probably been as good as example as you'll ever see of a community banding together to try and work through it. We're very fortunate to have a couple of significant businesses in town who take the bull by the horns and really got in early and got things going with all their staff and machinery and I think the town to a degree will be forever indebted to them. We've got some great leaders in the community and they've all stood up and had a real crack the last few weeks. If there's a positive to come out of it all, that's probably the main one I reckon. Yeah, it, it was a war zone in there for the first few days and it's not much better now but every day it does get better. Yeah, piece by piece. And ironically, piece by piece going to the tip. <laughs> Grain farmer Toby Aycock speaking there. And Warwick, of course, the, the other big question that's floating over all of this and, and causing so many issues, I guess, long term, is that we still don't know exactly what this damage is going to look like. Yes, we know where the water has flowed. We can see the paddocks that are wrecked. But the question becomes then what happens next you know is are the paddocks going to dry out in time for us to get machinery out on them to even spray out what's left so that we can then look at potentially putting in summer crops or then get on to you know get summer crops into the ground because if we can't do that then that causes more problems going forward and it's a similar issue that's facing uh, groups like tomato growers at the moment we heard last week that Comey have only got about 20 percent of their crop in so far so the issue is even though the flood water has passed, uh, we still don't know what the full impact of this damage is. And, and uh, we'll hear probably at some stage as well from leader of the, the Nationals, David Littleproud, who's in town surveying just that at the moment. Um, so it'll be interesting to hear if there are any options that will be floated by government or by opposition in this case uh, about what we can potentially look at doing You know, if this damage starts to get worse, Warwick. There's a lot to go from here. Uh, Luke Radford, thanks very much for taking us to that part of the world along the Camp Haspi as the cleanup continues today. No worries. Thanks, Warwick. That is Luke Radford uh, speaking to you there uh, from around the Elmore-Rochester region about the cleanup in agriculture. But the stories continue to come out of that region uh, are extraordinary about what exactly happened on the nights that the flood hit. From the broadcast from ABC Central Victoria today, uh, dairy farmer Bruce McCaig spoke to Fiona Parker just about what he was up to and what his machinery was required to do on the night of the floods. And I was just out on Dingy Road, just observing the water come up the road and flood houses at the end of, end of the road. And I, a car pulled up probably five or 600 metres back from the intersection and where the people were because the water was encroaching out to the west. And a young girl jumped out of the car and just started heading diagonally across the paddock, across the flooded paddock over barbed wire fences over to the houses on Fuller Avenue. And I just thought to myself, what's her plan? And I said to her, um, the other lady in the car who's part of the family, she said, oh, wh- where's she going? What's the plan? And she said, oh, she's going to go over and get mum and dad, so they were her grandparents, they're going to walk out across the flooded paddock over the barbed wire fences about a kilometre. And I thought, oh, that's not a great idea. What can I, thought, what can I do? And I thought, well, I can go and get my loader and drive in there and pick them up in the bucket and carry them over to the fence and put them down over there. So that's what I did. Another farmer had tried to get in, get into from the um, uh, the railway road end and flooded his loader and didn't couldn't get in there because the water had come up that high and was too deep at that end of the street. So all the people in Fuller Avenue who were still there, which hadn't flooded before Fuller Avenue, 
were all stuck there. They couldn't get out even if they wanted to. So I came in a different direction and carried people. I started carrying, ferrying people across in the bucket. And uh, these are people over. They sit in the bucket. I drive them over. To, you know all the things you shouldn't do with a front end loader, a telehandler. You know some of them are like um, one was a guy who was a grandson and his 92 year old grandfather carried mm. them over. And then. So where were they sitting? In the bucket. In the, the front, bucket. In the Gee. front. Yeah. <laughs> so. And then it started to get dark and the water got deeper and deeper and I didn't want my loader to be drowned like the other farmers and one of my neighbours saw me over in the paddock and saw what I was doing he rang me up and said, can I give you a hand? And I said, look, it's getting too deep. And he said, well, what can we do? So he went home and got his tractor and a great big hay trailer and by this stage, uh, other young blokes up the street with their tinnies were ferrying people out, the, where the, out, the, um, out over to where I was picking them up in tinnies. Was it dark? Not, uh, it was just about dark when I got there, yeah. And then, so we picked, so by this stage, the SES had been flooded in town here, and um, they, all the emergency response had shifted out to the sewage farm on Mackenzie Street. So we started picking people up and putting, putting them on the hay trailer and driving them out to Mackenzie Street and doing it there. And we picked, and so there was, you know, young families, older people who had just been caught out by just the speed the speed of the flood water and how high it became. And um, I don't know, they didn't think, weren't comfortable with leaving their homes. And then, of course, then there's people got scared because the water had come up so quick. There was a lot of um, oh, misunderstanding about what might be happening on the river. They hear rumours that, the, that, you know, the epilogue's gone, the second spillway's washed out, there's a weir between Elmore and Rochester, that's been damaged, the water's gone everywhere... A lot of scare, a lot of people were afraid, and then we sort of most of the people who wanted to get out of Fuller Avenue were out, and then we saw well, well we, we'll go into town and see if we can help help out in town picking up people, and then there was a different group of young guys in tinnies in town, like four or five different tinnies picking people up, and at that stage they were walking out to the relief centre at end of Mackenzie Street, so we drove into the streets through the water, and we're getting out in the water, you know, taking the tinnies up to their front front door of their house and they're getting in there and putting in there and like these are people who wanted to get out there was um uh people who'd rung the ses or had rung to be asked to be evacuated and they hadn't been picked up and these are guys in their 70s and 80s who had rung at you know, 11 o'clock in the morning and it was 1.30 night and no one had been... 1.30 a.m. Yeah, 1.30 a.m. and no one had been to pick them up. So I've been waiting for that long. So, yeah, so we picked them up and So how, them how long were you, in the end, on that tractor for helping people? Well, it was 4 a.m. when I got home. That is farmer Bruce McCaig speaking to Fiona Parker there just about some of the effort that had went into saving people on the night that Rochester was flooding. Just extraordinary. And speaking of effort, it doesn't stop because when the water on the Goulburn River stranded 400 of his sheep on a sand hill 10 days ago, Undira farmer Tim Ashcroft had to get creative. He had to access hay from need for feed but had no way of getting it to his sheep. So he devised a plan to boat up the Goulburn River to a neighbouring property, collect a round bale, one bale at a time, and boat them back to his farm before dragging his boats across land with a tractor and then boating the last leg of his journey to take the hay to hungry sheep. It's as extraordinary as it sounds. And he's speaking here to rural reporter Angus Verley. Yeah, so well, obviously the Golden River was flooding 
water was coming in and uh, the area they're in is generally okay, but there's a channel called the Bray Road Channel and they sandbag that right up and that pushed the water back across, right back towards Undera and back flooded my farm too. So the sheep ended up trapped on this little sand hill and the water, the time it happened, the water was too deep to get them off. And that's how they ended up stuck there. Okay, so you thought that they'd be okay, but the water behaved differently to, to what you expected. Uh, well, yeah, like you know, I was really concentrating on the, the river and the Goulburn, uh, not all the water you know, pushing back from where they sandbagged that channel. And it, uh, it wasn't only me affected either, it affected a lot, a lot of farmers on, say, the poor side of the Bray Road channel. They all got fighting, all their crops, all, they're still fighting now. So it's not just me, it's a lot of people fighting. But that's how it happened. And in the end, I got trapped there by themselves, sheep. Okay, so 400 sheep stuck on a sand hill. Was there any feed on the sand hill? Well, at the start, there was there was a fair bit of feed. But as the water rose and then you know dropped a bit, then rose again, it took away more and more of their feed. And now, after they've probably been there a bit over 10 days now, there's, there's no feed left there now. So, Tim, talk me through this long journey that you need to, to do with boat and tractor to, to get feed to them? So what I have to do is I've got my tinny and a little punt. So I start at my place on the Golden River and I drive down the river and then I drive up Wells Creek and I meet these two great local farmers, Brad and Kyle Muir, who bring hay down for me. They half the hay bale. We put half in the little tinny, the leftover hay in my boat. I drive back down Wells Creek back up the Goulburn River, maybe 5Ks, connect the two boats to a tractor and a chain. I drag them across maybe 500 metres of land, put the boats back in and continue across my land to the sand hills, get to the sand hill, take out the hay, roll it out for the sheep, drop them off some lick blocks, uh, reverse the process, come back in, hook the two boats to the tractor, across the land, into the Goulburn, down the Goulburn, back up Wells Creek, to reload another bit of hay. Oh, so, so five kilometres by boat, and you've got to drag those boats across land and then back on water to, to boat across to this island. That's how I'm doing it every day. And when I finish that, because some of the some of the ewes are struggling with their lambs, I've taken the lambs off, and I come back here in the afternoon and I feed the lambs. And that's practically my day. And you, you can only do really one round bale at a time. In the boat, yeah, so, yeah, a one-round bale, it weighs a fair bit. Uh, yeah, that's all I can do is a one-round bale at a time. That round trip, how long does it take? Uh, the time I start from here and come back and get out there, it's about six hours. Has it started dropping? Uh, so the Goulburn the themselves dropped and risen, depending on, you know, we had that rain a few days ago, so it rose again. They've let water out of Lake Yilda now, so it'll, it'll rise again. Uh, personally, at the moment, which is dropping, which is great but it's obviously dependent on what happens upstream a long way. So do you have any sense of how long you're going to have to do this for? No, I don't know, to be honest. Yeah, I don't know how long it'll take. And, and can you keep it up? I mean, I'm sure there are other jobs that you, you really should be doing around the farm. Can, can you keep up spending all of your time doing this? Well, practically my whole farm's flooded anyway, so at the moment it's not that crucial, but it's my whole day at the moment, and, uh, yeah, well, sometimes you don't have a choice, you just... You just do what you can do. And lucky I've got people like Brad and Kyle helping me, which is great. What reception do you get from the sheep when you when you arrive? Um, they love me. 
they love me. Yeah, they hear the boat coming across, and they're waiting for their food. That island that they're on, I, I know you said it changes in size depending on the water level, but roughly, how big is it? Uh, at the moment, it's probably three acres. Mm, so not very big. Not very big at all, no. So, Tim, where to from here? I just get up each day and just do the best I can, and hopefully soon the water drops. Or, yeah, if I get some of that water off the roads, it'll, it'll help. I might be able to drive in in a couple of days. I can hear lambs in the background, Tim. Are they those ones that yeah. you brought back? Yeah, they're all the lambs. Like the, I, yeah, so the, the mums weren't doing the best, so I took them all off and brought them back in here. Yeah. Yeah, just around the house. So I just, yeah. They're, they're doing remarkably well, really, to be taken off their mum so early. They're doing well. And how about yourself, Tim? Yeah, I'm doing fine. There's a lot of people worse off than me in the world. What a hard worker. That is an extraordinary story of getting feed to sheep. Tim Ashcroft there, who farms near Undira on the Goulburn River, speaking with Angus Verley about the, well, incredible boat slash tractor slash everything else plan he's hatched to try and get feed to his hungry sheep. Just a couple of markets for you today, and let's begin with the cattle market. It is Brendan Fletcher, who's at Bansdale. G'day, Brendan. G'day. Warwick numbers increased to 265. That's 115 more, with most of the usual buyers operating in a cheaper market. Quality was scarce, as cows represented 70% of the sale. The handful of young cattle sold to local restockers a little dearer. Grown cattle sold firm... Cows sold 10 cents cheaper, with processors loading cows for an estimated 607 to 795 cents a kilogram carcass weight. Heavy bulls eased slightly. Heifers of varying age and condition to local restockers sold from 354 to 502. A couple of bullocks made 470. Most light and medium weight cows 240 to 347. Heavyweights 260 to 422. Heavy bulls 325 to 383. This is Brendan Fletcher reporting for MLA. Thanks very much for that, Brendan. Let's head to the sheep and lamb market reports. Now Leanne Dax is at Wagga Wagga. Good afternoon, Leanne. Good afternoon. 28,000 lambs and 6,000 sheep sold to a smaller group of domestic and export processors. The yarding lacked weight and young new season's lambs across trade weight categories lacked the carcass finish of the previous sale. Heavy young lambs were keenly sought while heavy old lambs were the highlight of the market, surging $30. The market across the board jumped 10 to $20. New seasons, 21 to 24, 175 to 224, 24 to 26, 208 to 242, 26 to 30, 239 to 270, over 30 kilos for young lambs, 275 to 289. Old trade, 166 to 205. Heavy old lambs, 26 to 30 kilo, 220 to 267, over 30 kilos, 265 to $309. Reno trades, the better end, $170 to 212 merino hoggets 152 to 220 and crossbred hoggets anywhere from 130 to 258 sheep yet to be sold leandax mla thanks very much for that leanne that's about all the time we have for you on the country hour on the text line didn't really go to that many times today my apologies tom at chatura is actually offering up 50 acres of feed for heifers at no cost tom we're probably not the best place to be doing that running that but what i will do is i'll pass on your text message to someone we know who's 
operating in that space in the area and they might be able to find someone for you. Thank you for your company though. Remember, you can look online abc.net.au slash rural for all your rural news and information. The Oyen Farmers Festival is up there from yesterday as is the hailstorm in the Goulburn Valley. Also information going up there right now on those sheep being helicoptered out of flood affected areas of New South Wales. You need to go and read that story. Talk to you tomorrow.